Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, February 5th, we are starting a new series here on Sharper Iron that will take us through St. Paul's Epistle to the Galatians. The series is called No Other Gospel. The churches in Galatia had believed the pure gospel in Christ that Paul had preached to them initially, but soon false teachers came and questioned what the apostle, if he really could be called that, they said, what he had taught them. Paul might have gotten the Galatians off to a good start, the false teachers claimed, but now they needed to finish the job, and they needed to do that by learning to follow the law, particularly the law concerning circumcision. Well, when St. Paul got word of such false teaching, he fired off this letter to the Galatians to call them back in no uncertain terms to the only gospel there is. Today's episode will introduce the epistle as a whole and study the first text, Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 to 10. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, the Reverend Dr. Ryan Tanetti. Pastor Tanetti serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Arcadia, Michigan. Pastor Tanetti, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be with you. So let's talk about some of typical matters about the beginning of a book. When we come to Galatians, uh, we're reading one of St. Paul's epistles. Talk to us about Paul and about epistles. Sure. So first of all, we just have to say Galatians is just a real banger of a letter in the New <laughs> Testament. I mean, this is such a—this is the heart of the gospel when you get into the letter of Galatians. Uh, Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians, arguably his best work, where he's just filled with this verb and vim and vigor as he is, is getting after the nature of what it means for us to God, for God to save us single-handedly through his son, Jesus. I mean, Galatians just brings that to the table with such rich fare. So as you say, this is a letter from Paul, an epistle, and arguably his first letter. It's up there with First Thessalonians. So it's, it's after his first missionary journey. He made his way through um, the, the Roman province of Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey and uh, writes this letter to the churches there because they have been unsettled. We'll talk more about uh, the nature of that. But this is, this is indisputably St. Paul, the Apostle, and that's also going to be a big thing at, is, at issue, as you already alluded to, his apostolic authority. Where does he derive that from? But suffice it to say, this is a, uh, an undisputed letter from St. Paul, uh, written probably around early 50s, late 40s, early 50s, very early, and so, I mean, within uh, really a generation after the resurrection and ascension of our Lord. Mm. Now, you said the the churches in Galatia, whereabouts are we geographically here? And in all, I know there's a little bit of debate here among scholars, but, but about where would we find this on a map? Yeah, so, well, yeah, if you've got, uh, you got the, the good Bibles that have the cool color maps in the back, you might open that up and look at the, the map that shows Paul's missionary journeys, and uh, you'll look at for the, the Roman province of Galatia. So up uh, to the north and west of Jerusalem, um, you have these uh, provinces, and it, 
it does stretch a, a rather large area. And so, um, like you say, there's some dispute. Is this talking about uh, northern Galatia, which was the more ethnic area, or is it southern Galatia? Um, for our purposes, it's it's not too significant, except to say that in all likelihood, this is southern Galatia, where Paul had passed through here with his first missionary journey, visiting places like Antioch and Iconium, and this is recounted in the book of Acts, Acts chapters 13 and 14. And so, again, you'd think of this as, as modern-day Turkey. It's a place you can still go to and visit. Presumably, I've not been there myself, but um, it's there. And uh, that's where Paul was had passed through, had uh, established these churches there, and not long thereafter, uh, things start to get a little bit unsettled. All right, so let's talk about that, because that's the primary thing that we need to, to keep in mind as we read the Galatians. What is the occasion? What's going on, this false teaching that Paul writes to combat? Yeah, so this is really significant um, in these churches. So Paul goes there, and we see already in the book of Acts that um, he comes in, and he's facing pushback from Jewish Christians. And these are folks who have come to be known as Judaizers. They're uh, people who... It's not that they renounced faith in Christ or were um, just outright antagonists, but rather were folks who were saying, oh, man, Jesus, this is great, uh, the, the gospel that he brings, but, of course, we're also going to want to continue to uphold our, our Jewish law and continue to practice things such as circumcision and dietary laws, etc. And if you want to be a full Christian. I mean, this is what the, the full gospel must really entail, is not only the good news that Jesus comes to bring, but also that the ancient Jewish law that Moses has given to us. And we need kind of this mashup, this combination, this hybrid message that comprises both of those things. So these folks were coming in not long after Paul leaves there, and it's creating all kinds of confusion and even dissension in this young church. And in fact, it's ultimately going to um, bring about the first council of the church, the Council of, uh, of Jerusalem, which is recounted in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 15. And so this is the what really gets Paul's hackles up. And we get to see him uh, you know, throughout his letters, where he'll be really frustrated, you know, book of our letter of Corinth, first letter of Corinthians, um, in particular, we see Paul just frustrated, pulling his hair out at some of the the moral lapses, just the old Adam and Eve still coming out in the behavior of believers. But in his letter to the Galatians, he is more exercised than perhaps at any other point in his ministry. And the reason being because he says that what's at issue and what's at stake with these Judaizers and their proclamation of the gospel being Jesus plus Moses is that it, there's nothing less than the true gospel at stake in this. And in so doing also the salvation of those who believe and, and trust in Christ. So for Paul, nothing could be more important. He is not going to... to soft-pedal this whatsoever, say, yeah, you know, this isn't that big of a deal, or hey, we all we can agree to disagree. No, to the contrary. He's going to say, there is no other gospel. The gospel is the proclamation of God's single-handed salvation in Christ Jesus for sinners, how he delivers us from sin, death, and the devil. It's Jesus plus nothing. That's mm. the, the message that resounds throughout the letter to the Galatians, and, and that's why he's so fired up. Even as I'm getting a little fired up just talking to you right now, Pastor, I, what can I say? I'm, that's right. <laughs> I'm a good listener in that respect. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, as, as you mentioned, this is, is often high on the list of favorites uh, of the books of the Bible for Lutherans as because of Luther's commentary, and again, because of that 
pure proclamation of the gospel that Paul is so fired up to preach, which we too are fired up to hold on to. You know, you mentioned that the name that's attached to these false teachers, they're often called Judaizers, which I, I don't know that that's not a name that Paul ascribes. That's just what we've attached to them, right? Or is, or is that mentioned yeah, in one of the letters? No, well, it, it comes from uh, the a Greek verb, which I think is only used once. Uh, I'm going to butcher it, but Judaizen, basically, to, oh. to make or to live like a Jew. So it, it does show up in this letter in uh, chapter 2. Okay. Yeah, uh, chapter 2, verse 14, Paul is going to say where he's kind of having this tete-a-tete with Peter actually, where he says to him, I said to Cephas, a.k.a. Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews, to eudazing? And so uh, from that verb, you get this... uh, this uh, epithet of Judaizers. So, okay. yeah, this, it's, it's, it's kind of drawn from his writing. So the, the reason I bring that up is because with, with that Judaizers being in the background then, how, do, how, do, how does this apply to the Church today? Because I don't know that I see too many people wanting Christians to live like Jews particularly. So what's the, right. uh, how does this come into the Church still today as a very applicable letter that still gets Lutheran pastors fired up? Yeah, good. Well, that's such an important question. Thank you. Uh, I think, you know, there are some very narrow points of application with um, strains of Christianity, such as Seventh-day Adventists, where there really is a sense that we're trying to uh, apply um, Jewish ceremonial laws, especially with respect to diet and the Sabbath. But you're right that there is a broader application to be made here. And it happens in, in such subtle and seemingly benign ways, harmless ways, where it's like, well, yes, we know that we are saved by grace through faith. But, you know, if you're going to really live the full victorious Christian life, you're going to need to really apply yourself. You're, I mean, you're going to need your good works to enter into the equation as well. Um, it can happen just as, as harmless as making it sound like, hey, yeah, Jesus did everything, but, you know, you need to live uh, the obedient Christian life also. I mean, it goes without saying, right, that if God's going to accept you, he's going to accept you because you're somebody who, who lives a, a faithful life of discipleship. Now, these all sound like good things. They use Christian language and lingo. But what starts to seep in is this uh, impression that the finished work of Jesus is unfinished, and that when the Lord is on the cross, he doesn't say, it is finished, but it's mostly done. I just need you guys to take it. I, I brought you halfway, or even I brought you nine-tenths of the way. If you can just run that last leg of the race, then we'll be good. But no, Jesus has done everything. And you see this in all sorts of branches of Christendom. It happens to any of us when we want to insert uh, some of our own work, some of our own efforts into the equation, rather than relying simply and wholly on what Jesus has done. So, as you say, for most folks, it's not a temptation that they're going to live like Jews, that they're going to, to don a, a yarmulke or follow the, the Jewish calendar or anything like that. But any time we start to add into um, the, the finished work of Christ our own efforts, our own morality, our own obedience, then we are following that strain of Judaizers, and then we're earning the ire of St. Paul. Mm, yeah, and I'm sure we'll have plenty of opportunity as we study this epistle over the next couple of weeks to talk about some of those applications as we see them come up with St. Paul. Now, you, you've mm-hmm. mentioned already, uh, with, with this being an epistle, 
Uh, talk to us about the the structure of Galatians. Is there a, how does how does Paul organize his argument? Yeah, so the, the Galatians is a great letter to look at from a rhetorical perspective, which is to say Paul as fired up as he is, this is not just a guy going on to Twitter and like giving some diatribe like here, you know, I've got I've got more tweets here yet, yeah, just keep following on the strain. He it's a very um, organized and persuasively argued letter. And there's been some great research uh, done from biblical scholars over the last couple of generations, drawing out how Paul, who is a Jew by birth, but also in, in many respects um, a Greco-Roman by training and by education, is able to bring to bear some of those tools of classical rhetoric in particular in order to persuade his hearers. So there's different ways that we can um, structure and look at the outline of the letter. You can look at it just you know, from a, a straightforward kind of introduction in the first, you know, five or ten verses to kind of the background and then the solution to the problem. and Or you can look at it through, here's, you know, kind of gospel and then um, sanctification or application. Um, but I think there's a, a good case to be made that he has a rhetorical structure to it, and we don't need to get into the fancy Latin terms, but suffice it to say, there's kind of the opening um, prescription, the opening um, just uh, introduction, and then you have uh, the, the body of the letter in which he is going to establish his credibility, what uh, classical rhetoricians would call the ethos, his uh, rapport, his um, authority to be able to make the argument that he's making. Um, and then you have him kind of refuting some of the um, possible objections that are made before he really brings it home and um, conveys, here's, here's the heart of the matter, and here's why it makes uh, such a difference in the lives of the hearers until finally it leads to a conclusion in chapter 6. So there's different ways to structure it, but suffice it to say, this letter is uh, it, it's not just Paul you know, ranting. It is a well-thought-out, well-argued, well-structured epistle where he is making a, a persuasive case for why Jesus is it and why he's everything. It, that's a striking thing to, to note here in Galatians after we've just finished reading First and Second Corinthians here on Sharper Iron, in which Paul, in more than one occasion, talks about how you know he didn't come with plausible words of wisdom. He simply right. came preaching Christ crucified. But we noted in, in that series, and, and again here, that doesn't mean that Paul just, as you said, started ranting and, and raving and saying whatever was on his mind. He did actually organize his thoughts in a coherent manner to help mm -hmm. communicate that truth of the gospel. Yes. Yeah. Yep, no, that's exactly right. And, I, you know, I think there's uh, the Book of Lamentations in the Old Testament also comes to mind, where you have this, um, I mean, it's, it's a lament. It's the heartbroken people of God, in particular the prophet Jeremiah, lamenting the fact that they're in exile. And if ever there were a time for it to be just kind of weeping on the page, that would be it. And yet even in the midst of that, that time of chaos, there's some order that's brought to it, because in the, the book of, uh, of Lamentations, it's structured in a, uh, an acrostic way, according to the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. There's a very clear structure and order to it, um, and so also in Galatians. And what that conveys to us is that even while, as the, the people of God can get worked up about these things, we're always, well, as it says in, in 1 Corinthians, you know, God is a God of order and of peace, and so there's still a good order in the midst of that chaos, and I think that itself is a, 
part of the, the fruit of the gospel. Yeah, absolutely. So Paul puts that to use. Pastors today still put that to use in their preaching. So mm-hmm. looking looking into this epistle, then, Pastor Tanani, maybe this is a, a tough question to, for a pastor to answer, but what's what are the key passages? What's your favorite passage from Galatians? Yeah, right. Well, it's funny you ask that, because for myself, uh, I'm a little uh, ashamed or embarrassed to uh, mention this, being a, a Lutheran pastor, but I forgot what my confirmation verse was. I'm sure that I've got it around somewhere, but, you know, when I was in confirmation class, I'll just say that it probably wasn't the most important thing on my calendar at that time, right? Sure. <laughs> and so I just have misplaced it. Well, somewhere along along the line, I thought to myself, you know what, though? I want to have a verse that's kind of like a theme verse for me, even if I don't have that specific confirmation verse. And so for me, um, it's Galatians 2.20 is just such a powerful evocation of the life of faith and of Christ in us. So if I can just read that to you, it says, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Right there you have like all the aspects of the gospel, the objective work of Christ on our behalf, and also the subjective appropriation of that work by faith. In other words, how not only do I, I trust in what Christ has done, but I, now that changes how I live, and my life is conformed to his life and uh, how he continues to work in me. Just a beautiful, powerful message. And actually, as we'll get into shortly, um, it's already anticipated and kind of foreshadowed in his introduction in chapter 1. Uh, there's other great uh, verses you could go to in, in chapter 3. He's really going to get into um, what we as Lutherans talk about, law and gospel, and how um, the scriptures imprison everything under sin. This is chapter 3, verse 22, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. I mean, you've got the great uh, fruits of the Spirit passage in chapter 5, chapter 6. Um, the calling forth the new creation, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. I mean, there's, oh man, Pastor Apple, you're going to have so much fun with this over <laughs> the next right. couple of, of weeks. There's a lot to go on here. That's right. That's right. So let's go ahead and jump into the first part of chapter one. We're reading chapter mm-hmm. one, verses one through 10 this morning. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. That's our text for today. That's Galatians 1, verses 1 to 10. 
So, Pastor Tenetti, the opening of epistles is sometimes part of what I might call flyover country in the scriptures. We, you know, <laughs> we know what's there, so we don't always pay that close attention. But it, it is worth our while to do so. So, help us just into that first verse. Paul says he's an apostle, and it seems he wants to emphasize this fact that he's an apostle and how he became one. Yes. No, you're absolutely right. Many times we'll just kind of brush right past it, and whether or not that's ever a, a good thing, I think it's, it's probably not. Um, in particular here in Galatians, you don't want to do it, because straight away Paul is establishing his credibility and the basis for the argument that he's going to make. Um, it seems as though this was part of what had been in question among the, the Judaizers, these uh, opposition party, saying, hey, is this Paul guy, is he really an apostle? Like, can we trust him? He was not one of the first 12 that Jesus chose. He's this guy who's just Johnny come lately, right? And Paul's like, in fact, and in some ways it establishes my credibility even stronger because I'm apostle not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ. In other words, he had, as we're familiar with the story from, from the book of Acts, he had this kind of direct revelation of the Lord, where he gets you know, knocked off his, his horse and he's on, on his way to Damascus, and Jesus says, hey, Paul, or Saul at that time, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And calls him not only to faith, but then to be this missionary apostle, this sent one, as the word literally means, to the Gentiles. And so it's, it's so significant for Paul to come out with that right away, because he is um, expressing this fact that, and he's going to um, develop it later in, in chapter 1 and then into chapter 2, of, listen, I am, a, I am truly an apostle. I'm one who has been picked out by the Lord Jesus in order to bring this message. So make no mistake about my authority or you know, the, the basis of this proclamation. It's not mine. It is the it belongs to the Lord Himself who has chosen me um, purposefully for this mission. So it's really significant that we catch that right off the bat. Mm. Talk about and this is something that that came up in the letter to the Corinthians as well. Both of them, Paul's apostolic office. Talk a little bit about why this, like as he calls himself an apostle, he really wants you to know that he is a legitimate apostle. Talk about right. why that's not boasting on his part, but it's actually putting himself in his proper place so that, I guess, I mean, so that he can talk more about Christ. Talk, talk about yeah. that, because that sometimes, I think, can, is, is a bit confusing. It sounds like he's boasting, but he's really not. No, that's, that's a really good point, because to recognize that you are apostles, one who is sent with a mission, he's, he's, somebody, he's got marching orders. And so what he is trying to convey to them is, listen, guys, if I were coming to you just with my own message, uh, then that, that would be, uh, that'd be something different. But the fact that I'm an apostle tells you that I'm coming to you not with Paul's great ideas, but with Jesus' good news. That, and that makes all the difference. So, yes, it can, it can sound like he's boasting or you know, leveling himself up, but in fact, by recognizing he's an apostle, he's bringing himself down a notch. He's saying, listen, this isn't about Paul's platform. This isn't about how Paul is getting out there and, and you know, uh, bringing all of his great ideas and teachings to the world. But just to the contrary, he is, as he says in the Corinthian correspondence, he's a steward. He is, in fact, a slave of Jesus Christ. And that comes up in the, the latter part of this section as well. Because he is a slave of Jesus, as one who is carrying the marching orders from the Lord, it's not about him. Hmm. And that is really the, what he's bringing through here. He's called. He has been uh, equipped, qualified simply and solely at the uh, at the initiative and at the pleasure of his Lord Jesus. 
So he has been sent, again, not from men nor through man, but instead through Jesus Christ and God the Father. And then Paul notes that God the Father is the one who raised Jesus from the dead. Again, right. that's maybe stuff that we would just kind of fly right over. What's there, particularly in the fact that God the Father is the one who raised Jesus from the dead? Yeah, so I mean, there's, uh, although we don't have mention of the, the Holy Spirit yet at this point, I mean, there's overtures of that, that Trinitarian relationship of Jesus is the one who comes proclaiming the, the reign and rule of God and identifies himself as the Son of God. And the Father vindicates those claims by raising him from the dead. And in Romans uh, at the beginning of Romans, Paul will say something similar, who uh, was declared to be the Son of God with power by the, the Spirit of holiness. So it's the Holy Spirit is the one who vivifies Jesus out of the grave, who brings him back to life. And so we see here that just the, those um, intimate relations of, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit establishing the validity of this proclamation and the fact that this gospel is not man's gospel. It's not just a, a message that you can throw away, but it has been verified and validated by the fact that the Lord Jesus came back out of the grave and then called Paul and said, now, Paul, you need to carry on this mission to all the ends of the earth. Mm, yeah, so then he says in verse 2, he's also writing, this is all the brothers who are with me. So this is often the case in Paul's epistles. He mentions a few people, although he's pretty nondescript here, just the brothers who are with me. And then to yeah. the churches of Galatia, again, right. this is standard. I guess what, what stands out to me is that he's very brief at this point, where in other places he, he's a little bit more verbose. But there may be more. I don't. That's what I, I see. Yeah, I mean, he, is, he wants to cut to the chase, and he's going to, to do so quickly. But I think uh, with that comment in verse 2 to the churches of Galatia, we can just point out again, and this was often the case, that these letters, these epistles, would have been circular letters. Mm -hmm. And so he, they would have been read aloud like a sermon, and that's why um, oftentimes it has not only that, that introduction, but also um, in conclusion there will be things like, you know, the, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, things that are familiar to us from our Lutheran liturgy, and we didn't just make this stuff up. It's, it comes from uh, precisely from that kind of apostolic um, precedence that's already been set. So at the end of Galatians 6, the last verse of the letter, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. So it's a letter that would have been read and circulated among the churches of Antioch and Iconium and elsewhere, and so that's just already conveyed and hinted at with that uh, in there in verse 2. That's right. And so he comes then to a very familiar greeting, as you said, to us still with words like grace and peace. We're going to pick those words up and the rest of this introduction on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Ryan Tinetti this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Who does Lutheran Church Extension Fund serve, you ask? It's simple. We serve Lutheran Church Missouri Synod ministries and church workers with loans and ministry services. And it's faithful Lutherans like you, church members and church workers alike, investing with LCEF that makes it possible for LCEF to serve these ministries. Learn more at lcef.org. 
LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, February 5th. We're studying Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 to 10 with Pastor Ryan Tenetti. He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Arcadia, Michigan. Pastor Tenetti, prior to the break, we got through Paul identifying himself, the brothers who are with him. He's writing to the churches of Galatia. And we come to, again, more familiar words to Paul's epistles and to our worship still today. He says in verse 3, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Before we see how he modifies that, just talk to us about the grace and the peace. Yeah, so in in some ways that is just a conventional Greek greeting and a letter, grace and peace, but clearly for Paul, there's a theological freight to this, and Luther will go so far as to say that you've got the whole gospel already just encapsulated in these two words and how they are gifts of and, and fruits of the good news of what Jesus has done, that now God has saved us by grace, his unmerited favor, as well as his peace. Jesus Christ himself is our peace, it says in in Ephesians 2. It's the first word that our Lord speaks after his resurrection to the disciples, peace be with you. So in those those two words, on the one hand, they could just be looked at as, again, kind of conventional throwaways, but there is much more than meets the eye there when we see that this grace and peace comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul, as fired up as he's going to be in this letter, is not for nothing. He's not just angry. He's not just mad. He wants to bring them back to the true grace and peace that is found only in Christ Jesus, given from the Father, bestowed through the Spirit. So there's a lot already going on just in those two words. All right, so grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, and then he modifies who the Lord Jesus Christ is and what he's done. First, he is the one who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Oof. There's a lot there. (laughs) <laughs> There's a lot here. Well, so first of all, just how he identifies Jesus, and in the Greek it's even more apparent that um, it, it's almost as though, if I can put it this way, it's like this is a nickname, this is an appellation uh, for Jesus. Who's Jesus? He's the guy who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. It's a mouthful, and it makes for a long business card, but this is who Jesus is. That's his identity. He is the one who, first of all, he gave himself. There's that kind of self-donation of God. He, as it says in Philippians 2, he pours himself out. And why does he do that? He does it for our sins. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, Paul will say uh, in Timothy, that Christ Jesus came to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. This is, this is who he is. This is why he came. And I, and that Galatians commentary, uh, Luther will talk about how, you know, when Satan comes at you and accuses your conscience and reminds you that you're a sinner, you're like, yes, and that's good news, because Jesus came for sinners. The fact that I'm a sinner means that I am eligible for the salvation that he comes to bring. This is what, this is what he came to do. He gave himself for our sins. And for our sins, then there's a, a further purpose to that, to deliver us. From the present evil age. Now, there's a lot going on with this too. So, first of all, that verb "deliver." Now, 
Paul will speak this way and, and use similar kind of, of verbiage, for instance, in Colossians chapter 1. He'll talk about the redemption that we have in Christ, who has transferred us from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son, so that, that sense of deliverance. Um, but it, interestingly, the verb that he uses here has a particular Old Testament echo as well. So that in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, your hearers will remember that the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, then the Septuagint, that Greek translation, predates the time of, of Paul and the apostles by more than a century. Well, in Exodus chapter 3, um, God is, is talking to Moses, and he's telling him about what he has in store. And in that Septuagint translation, that Greek translation of Exodus chapter 3, uh, verse 7 and 8, the Lord said, to Moses, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And then verse 8, I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, to a land flowing with milk and honey. So that Paul, by using that particular verb, he's kind of calling to mind and alluding to God's work of the Old Testament redemption and the book of Exodus, how he delivered his people out of slavery to Pharaoh and gave them this gift of, of the promised land, brought them into the promised land, the relationship with himself and all that, that entailed. What Paul is subtly suggesting here is that what Jesus has done is accomplished a new exodus, and this is a recurring theme um, throughout the New Testament, and the gospel writers will pick up on this, and Paul continues that theme, that Jesus is our new exodus, and that he has delivered us not out of slavery to, to Egypt, but out of slavery to sin and death. He has delivered us not from Pharaoh, but from Satan, from the evil one. And now he has brought us into the promised land, not of the, the land of Canaan, but instead of his new creation and the promise of our everlasting home with him. And so um, just with that little verb there, he is uh, bringing forth and evoking this great larger biblical narrative and how Christ brings us into that. Oh. Now, I've got more to say about this, but let me pause there for just a second if you want to, to bounce off of that at all. No, that, that, is, that is fantastic. There is so much just in, in those words that Christ gave himself for our sins, that he delivers us. There's this new exodus that he has accomplished in his giving himself for our sins, but he's not delivering us from Egypt or from the reign of Pharaoh. Rather, he's delivering us from, as Paul says, the present evil age, which sounds rather cosmic in scope. Yeah, for sure. I mean, sometimes uh, biblical scholars will use the word apocalyptic to describe this way in which Paul is is describing the gospel here, because apocalyptic um, comes from a root word, literally means that unveiling, pulling back the curtain, like the apocalypse of St. John or the revelation of St. John. is this uh, cosmic nature and scope of the good news. And I think it's it's worthwhile for just a moment to talk about what uh, the, the $5 term for it is eschatology. So eschatology is that branch of theology that attends to the last things. And from our perspective, the, the eschaton, the last things, was ushered in with our Lord's resurrection and ascension and the outpouring of the Spirit. We're living in the end times. So this is contrary to some TV preachers and some branches of Christendom will, you know, paint the, just a, a picture of the end times are going to be at some time in the future, or maybe we're living in it now, um, but it's going to be accompanied with these particular signs and things like you know, rapture and tribulation, etc. 
Well, the fact of the matter is we're living in those times right now. The tribulation is all around us. We are All we are awaiting is not a rapture, but a return of our Lord Jesus when he is going to usher his kingdom in full and restore God's good creation into that renewed creation. But uh, this phrase, the present evil age, Paul is, is picking up on this kind of biblical vision of a, the a two ages. Okay, So if you can kind of picture with me in your mind um, a, a diagram where on the one hand you've got um, to the left, you've got this present evil age, or the, the Hebrew scholars, the rabbis of the time would call it the olam hazah, the age, the this one, that we are in right now. And it's the age that's marked by sin and death and you know, suffering. All of these things are markers of the present evil age, inasmuch as creation continues to be under the, the curse of Adam. What they had been looking forward to and anticipating was what they called the olam haba the coming age, the age to come. And this is, Paul is, is uh, alluding to this, and he does elsewhere in Ephesians, and Jesus himself speaks in this kind of language, where the idea is that when the Messiah comes, he's going to usher in this age to come. And he does. Now, what happens, though, is that now we live in this sort of overlap of the ages. What the, the rabbis of old had expected is that when the Messiah comes straight away, he is going to usher the age to come in in full, and sin and death and suffering and sorrow is all just going to um, go uh, you know, away right away. But in fact, we live in this, instead, this weird kind of overlap, if you will, a kind of you know, Venn diagram, where on the one hand, you've got the, that, uh, the, the present evil age. On the other hand, you have the age to come. Right now, we live in this overlapping place where, yes, we already have the first fruits of the age to come, in particular through the gift of the Spirit, the, the gift of the forgiveness of sins. We have that foretaste of it, but the full feast to come doesn't come until Jesus returns. So by um, hinting at and, and noting that Jesus delivers us from the, the uh, present evil age, he is showing how now we are rooted in the age to come, even as still our circumstances are, you know, we're surrounded by the, the present evil age. So this is a, a big biblical theme, and one that I think it's important for us to recognize, that we're living in the overlap of the ages, even as we await the, the full coming of the age to come. And that really adds to the urgency that Paul has in this letter, that, that we are, yeah. you know, we are living in that overlapping time yeah. where, I mean, thinking about, we recently were studying here in a Bible study, one of the, the recent pericopes in church from Mark 1, where Jesus comes preaching, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom yes. of God is at hand, so repent and believe the gospel. And then right after that, he calls four of his disciples who immediately follow him, and the the question was asked by by some in the class. Well, wh you know, why would they why would they just drop everything and follow Jesus? All he says is follow mm -hmm. them. And one of the the participants made a really insightful comment. He said, you know, that's what you do if the end of the world has come. And, and I think that's yeah. I mean that's exactly what's what was was going on there in Mark one. And I think it's very applicable to what Paul's doing here in Galatians. Like the end of the ages has come in Jesus. This present evil age, we are delivered from it. And the only way to be delivered from it is in this one gospel. So you need to believe it right now, Galatians. Don't don't get rid of it. Believe it now. <laughs> yeah, this is no plaything. Like the the uh, the kingdom is come and it's staring you in the face in the person of His Son. And Jesus says this is something that He He brings to our mind again and again, especially uh, toward the end of the Gospels, where He says, "Wait, watch." 
you know, the the kingdom is going to come. His return is going to come like a like a thief in the night. He uses all of these different sorts of images when you least expect it. It's going to be like the days of Noah when people were were going about just with their everyday life. Saying now there is this urgency because. Now is the – well, you've been going through Second Corinthians, and Second Corinthians yep. 6, he's saying, you know, today is the day of salvation. Today is the, the favorable time of our Lord. Like, don't wait. I remember I served as a uh, – uh, at my dorm at MSU, I was a resident mentor, an RA it's sometimes called. And I remember having a conversation with uh, a young man on my floor about faith and him saying – you know, I look forward someday to when I'm, you know, a grown-up, an adult, and I've got a family, to, to do the religion thing. You know, and he had in mind, like, you know, the religion thing, the faith thing, that's something you do when you become a responsible adult. It's like having a mortgage, you know, and 2.5 kids. Like, it just kind of comes with the package. But he's like, right now, I'm in college. Like, I'm going to live it up. I'm going to sow my wild oats. I'm going to have a good time. And I was like, dude. You, you missed the point. Like now is the favorable time. You don't know what tomorrow holds. And I mean, we could get into the whole thing of just viewing faith as like a con- another consumer good that you can kind of take or leave. That's its own problems. But just that notion that, well, I'll get to it someday. No, today's the day. Like he, I, we both had the, the teacher, Professor Jeff Gibbs, and I'm, I'm sure you've had him on here at some point. Professor Gibbs, one of his mantras would always be, perhaps today, yeah. perhaps today. Perhaps today is the day when our Lord returns. We are living in that overlap of the ages, and it brings all that urgency to it. All right, so this, this, what Christ has done, giving himself for our sins, delivering us from the present evil age, this was done according to the will of our God and Father. And then Paul breaks forth into doxology, even already here before he's said a whole lot more than that. <laughs> Yeah, this isn't typical for his openings even, but it just shows how theology, good theology, brings you to doxology. Can't be any other way when you recognize the the glories of the gospel. He can't help himself. He, He can't help but start singing the praises of God and what he has done in sending his Son to deliver us. It's a beautiful, beautiful sentiment. All right, and you and you mentioned, I think, earlier that in these verses we do have a bit of a summary of what we're going to encounter later in this epistle, as we've kind of already touched on. Right. You no, know, I mean, just in these first five verses, Paul signals the two principal concerns of this letter. First of all, his apostleship, his apostolic authority, but then also, and even more so, the nature of the gospel, the, the single-handed work of God to save us through the gift of his Son. So already, just in these first five verses, you've got that in a nutshell. All right. Now, I mentioned earlier how there's some, I, I think, in, in verse 2, a little bit of, he's very brief, where he could have sp- said more. When we make the transition from 5 to 6, most scholars know, most Christians know, there's something missing here that we're we're usually expecting. Yeah, you can just intuitively kind of sense that this is a little bit different when Paul straightaway goes into, I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And it's like, oh, Okay, I thought we might have some, uh, you know, some pleasantries there because <laughs> right. typically Paul would go into what was called the proem or kind of the uh, the, the prayer of thanks, and you have this, um, for instance, in, in Philippians one verse three, where he talks about, you know, whenever I think of you, I'm I'm so thankful for your partnership in the gospel. In Romans one, I mean, you can just go go down the line where um, even in First Corinthians, as I mentioned before, he's got a lot of beefs with the Corinthians beefs. I, I suppose I should say, um, but, but even still, 
he's got good reasons for thanks because of of their trust in the the gospel and what God has done. Here, there's no thanks. He's just like he's he's rolling up his sleeves and he's just getting after it, saying, "I am astonished." It's this great Greek verb right off the bat. Just says, "Thaumazo." I marvel. I am blown away. You might say, by the fact that you are so quickly transferring from the grace of Jesus and turning to a different gospel. And, you know, in ancient Greek, they didn't have what we call scare quotes, but right. you could put scare quotes around there like a different gospel. Uh, he's going to quickly spell out the fact that there's not a different one. But he is just getting after right away because he is just so, so exercised, so upset with the fact that they would turn away from, from Jesus and what he's done for us. Mm, yeah, so, I mean, he just jumps right into the topic. The, the fact that he, you know, he calls it, at least initially, a different gospel and then quickly clarifies that there's not another gospel. You know, we, right. we you talked about the Judaizers, that these are Jewish Christians. They, they're, yep. they sound like Christians. They're using Christian yep. terminology. I think you get a little bit of insight into that with the way Paul writes there. Yeah, I think it, it's a, it, it uh, suggests to us that they're using the language of gospel, and this continues. It's, it's a, a diabolical work of the evil one from time immemorial that he's going to play with words, that he's going to change the meaning of words. He's going to use the, the same vocable, the same signifier. Uh, the, uh, yeah, gospel. What I mean by gospel is that you need Jesus and also you know, the, the law of Moses. They're using the same words, but hollowing them out and filling them in with different meanings. And so I think Paul, in alluding to this, he's saying, listen, they might be telling us the gospel. No, when we use gospel, here's what is denoted by that word. When we use that, we mean the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God our Father. Like, let's be very clear yeah. about what we're talking about this. And so, yeah, that, I think he's he's a little bit uh, upset with the way that they're trying to co-opt that language. Right. So, and, and this, again, we see this throughout Paul's epistles. He is obviously very concerned for teaching true doctrine, and particularly when it comes to the gospel. That's where it all, the rubber really hits the road. It does. And, you know, if I can, for just a moment, this is where sometimes Christians, perhaps especially Lutherans, will get a bad name, and people will say, mm. you know, why do you care so much about that doctrine stuff? And why do you make such a big deal about the, the quote-unquote true gospel or pure gospel and so forth? And the fact of the matter is that these things have eternal implications. They are not just um, stuff that you can mess around with a little bit, and it's not that big of a deal. This is the very heart of our identity as human creatures, our relationship with our God. And if I may, I want to quote from a, a book, an author I often go back to, the, the book Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton, written mm. more than a century ago. But already in his day, there were plenty of people who were complaining about this, what seemed to be just very doctrinaire, focusing on the finer points. And he really um, speaks and argues against that in a way that in some ways is reminiscent of St. Paul. But Chesterton writes this. He says, Last and most important, it's exactly this which explains what is so inexplicable to all the modern critics of the history of Christianity. I mean the monstrous wars about small points of theology, the earthquakes of emotion about a gesture or a word. It was only a matter of an inch, but an inch is everything when you're balancing. The church could not afford to swerve a hair's breadth on some things if she was to continue her great and daring experiment of the irregular equilibrium. Once let one idea become less powerful, and some other idea would become too powerful. It was no flock of sheep the Christian shepherd was leading, 
but a herd of bulls and tigers, of terrible ideals and devouring doctrines, each one of them strong enough to turn a false religion and lay waste the world. Remember that the church went in specifically for dangerous ideas. She was a lion tamer. And I think you get that impression from Paul here in this opening to Galatians. Like, he's a lion tamer. He knows that this gospel that we have, everything hinges on it. It is not just some small point. He says, you know, as uh, Chesterton says, it's only a matter of an inch, but an inch is everything when you're balancing. And I think that really comes through in these verses. Now, as, as Paul continues then into verse 8, he, he imagines a situation that maybe he or an angel, if, if anyone, would preach a different gospel. Uh, Paul has a pretty strong strong language for that. Yeah, well, he, he does. So he says, if even an <laughs> angel or from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And the, the Greek word there is anathema. Yeah. It's a very technical term that has been brought over into um, English you know, for technical theological debates and so forth. But essentially, if you'll pardon my French, he's saying, let him go to hell. I mean, this is, uh, it's not putting it too strongly to say that, that, that to be anathema is to be cut off from the presence of God. He'll use the same word also in, I think it's Romans 9 or Romans 10, where he talks about this, that um, the, the one who has, try, has a zeal for their works to the detriment of that faith, that empty-handed faith in Christ, listen, in doing so, in trusting in, in those works rather than in Christ, you're cutting yourself off from the grace of Christ. And he'll be more explicit about this later in this letter as well. So he is putting this in the strongest possible terms. He's saying, listen, even if you've got an angel that comes to you, that's a fallen angel, right? This is an angel of the evil one that's trying to lead you astray. He's just putting a stake in the ground and saying, this is the gospel, Jesus, for you alone, nothing else. Don't let anything pull you away from it. Yeah, I mean, that, that strong language there, I think, is, is also a reminder that when we think about Paul upholding his apostleship, that he's not boasting in himself, because he, he even right. includes—not not that Paul is planning, by any means, to preach a false gospel, but he includes himself here. So he's like, listen, if even if I were to show up doing this, right. I too would be a curse. That's how serious the matter it is. And again, it's not about him, it's about the gospel and what Christ has done. Yeah, everything is about the message. And, you know, just to use kind of an analogy for those of you, sometimes I've heard folks preparing, you know, a last will and testament, and you say things like, you know, I, being of sound mind and body on this day, and it's almost like Paul is setting forth his last will and testament, even as our, our Lord did, our Lord Jesus did on the night when he was betrayed. This is my body, this is my blood, last will and testament um, given for us. So also, Paul is saying here, listen, I, Paul, being of sound mind and body, I'm telling you, this is what the gospel is. And even if I should myself be led astray and go crazy, you need to call me out too, because that would, uh, right here, this is the, the good news that we trust in, and nothing else, even if it runs under the, the name or the banner of the gospel, is truly the, the message that we heard and received from our Lord Jesus. So, yeah, he's laying it all out there and making uh, so unequivocally clear to the Galatians, this is what you need to lean on. Now, in the last verse of our text, he brings up what he's what he's doing. Is he is he trying to seek the approval of man or of God? He has a couple of questions. What's he what's he getting at there in that last verse of our text? Well, I think, again, we could probably read through this to some of what may have been going on with these Judaizers. Because you try to put yourself back in the, the shoes, or the sandals, as the case may be, of these believers from 2,000 years ago, and in particular for these Jewish Christians. And to be fair, 
with the best construction on it, they're in a difficult place because they have been brought up with these deeply instilled beliefs about the law of Moses and what it means to be a faithful follower of God. And so now they're trying to live in this equipoise between what they have learned and heard and received as those who upheld the law of Moses, but now this apocalyptic, you know, total table-turning message of what Christ, of the Messiah, Jesus, has done for them. And so there's the sense, perhaps, in which they're trying to eat their cake and still have it, right? They're trying to, to retain, keeping the good graces, perhaps, of, of family members, neighbors, members of the, the synagogue, those who have not yet come to believe in Jesus as the Messiah, uh, who are, are just maybe really put off and stunned by this message of this gospel. And perhaps they're saying, hey, listen, you know what? Um, yeah, we, we believe in Jesus as the Messiah, but you know, we still believe in the law. We're still upholding this. We're not crazy people here. And perhaps part of the motivation for that is precisely that they want to stay in the good graces of their friends and neighbors. And listen, I think there's some real applicability for us as believers still today, because, you know, I often tell my kids and my confirmation kids that, guys, if you're going to be a Christian in this present evil age, perhaps in particular in our uh, present society and culture and the way that it, it runs against the, the teachings of the scriptures, you're going to be weird. Mm-hmm. You just need to reconcile yourself to the fact you're going to be weird. You're going to be an outsider. My kids were telling me the other day that you know they, uh, when they sit down for lunch at their school, they make the sign of the cross and they pray. They just say, you know, grace before the meal. It's something, of course, that they've been brought up from the earliest days. But they said to me, Dad, we're the only ones that do that, and people look at us weird. They wonder what we're doing. Like, this is the way that it's going to be. Even something as simple as saying grace before a meal now might set you apart. Well, one way to soft-pedal that or, or try to show that, well, we're not so strange, we're not so weird, is to have that kind of um, you know, uh, reconciliation with the world or with those who are around us. And I imagine that, that Paul is seeing that, and he's saying, no. There's not going to be. I could be that kind of people pleaser. I could soft pedal my message to make it a little bit more palatable. I could add a, a spoonful of sugar to help this medicine of the gospel go down. I'm not going to do it because it's Jesus and nothing else. That's mm-hmm. it. With about a minute left here, Pastor Tennessee, help us to wrap things up, set the stage for, for everything else that we're going to read in this epistle. Yeah, well, it's clear already in these first few verses. The message of Galatians, the message of the gospel, is that Jesus plus anything else equals nothing. You lose it all. You can't say that that Jesus is necessary, but other things are necessary too, without losing the, the heart of the good news. To the contrary, as Paul is proclaiming, as the scriptures make clear, Jesus plus nothing equals everything he is not only necessary, but he is all sufficient. He's done everything for us, and it comes out already in these first few verses, but Paul is going to spell it out in such beautiful and powerful language throughout this letter to the Galatians. So really, you're just getting started here. The Reverend Dr. Ryan Tinetti served serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Arcadia, Michigan. He's been helping us today to study Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 to 10. Pastor Tinetti, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about Galatians 1 or the entire epistle, send us an email, kfuo at kfuo.org. It is always a joy to hear from you. I'm looking forward to traveling through this epistle to learn that there is no other gospel than the one that Paul preaches about Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, deliver us 
from the present evil age. God be praised. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. Tomorrow.